everybody, welcome back to the Consummate Athlete Podcast. I'm Molly Herford, author of a few books on cycling, with one coming out next summer, which is very exciting for me. Uh, also a writer about kind of all things fitness related, um, and currently just about over the uh, recovery from an ultra run. And I'm Peter Glassford. I am a registered kinesiologist and an endurance coach. And not recovered from your newfound running hobby that you've picked well, up. Well, I like to stay in a pretty overtrained state at most mm. times. It sort of conditions you. Yeah, yeah. Come out of that any time by just doing nothing. So it works it's true. out. It's really good for when you want to take a 10-day vacation. Yeah. Except you have all this energy all of a sudden. So Yeah, he's really annoying on vacation. Yeah. Apparently I was very uppity on the last one. So people liked that for the most part. What were you uppity about? I think it was hot off my victory. Ah, yes. yes. Yeah, the cheering noises you made for yourself as you came in seemed yeah. a little the excessive. The entrance music yeah, and so yeah. forth. Yeah. I mean, it's it's just our our spare bedroom office. I don't think it really the confetti gun seemed a little bit much. Yeah. So it's a long weekend. Happy end of summer. Just sad to say, but. See, for you, I love the back-to-school thing. I get such a rush when I walk into any store and they have a back-to-school section set up. So if we suddenly have a lot more pens, uh, I apologize. I don't know if you can ever have enough pens, but it's certainly the coming of the pumpkin spice latte seemed to be big news, and then also cyclocross has arrived. Mm -hmm. So the discipline of cycling that is takes place in the fall in the mud. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, we had one day, actually, I think it was Monday, no, it was maybe Tuesday, where it was a little bit chilly, a little bit drizzling here, and I just, like, could smell in the air that Cross was coming, and I just, like, perked right up, even though we don't really have any major race plans this year for cyclocross, it's still just a really magical time of year for me. Yeah, I haven't really planned. I have a bike, though, so when people ask, I say I'm a step closer to racing, but... I don't know. I do have the uh, coming this Thursday. So that is, what is the date this Thursday? It's like the 6th of September, 2018. Um, I think is the year. Yes. <laughs> yes, indeed. Uh, so the Cyclocross Mounts and Dismounts online course is coming from the Ryan Leach membership site, which has all sorts of different uh, courses and tutorials that'll teach you to bunny hop or corner. Uh, so we've added the Cyclocross Mount and Dismount to that series of courses. Oh, and uh, uh, one surprise thing I get to drop on you actually right now is my uh, yoga hip opener flow is also going up on the Ryan Leach so that's site. That's so. definitely the cool thing with the membership is A, you get coaching so you can post videos of yourself trying to do a bunny hop or now the cyclocross mount or dismount. You can get feedback from a variety of coaches including Ryan Leach who's trials pro extraordinaire and quite talented rider. But there's people like Shams March and a bunch of really cool... Uh, cyclist, but then also there's a bunch of yogis, including Ryan, who's also an accomplished yogi. Uh, Sounds and really weird when you say it. That is the term. I didn't make it I up. I know, but I just picture I Ryan I mean, the Leech. emphasis on the E is a little yeah. over the top. I'm just picturing Ryan Leach dressed like Yogi Bear, like just taking out a picnic basket and like sitting down and you just watch a video of him eating a picnic. I'd go to a yoga class with Yogi Bear. That's I feel fair. like that would be pretty big. We actually did a bunch of Ryan's yoga classes this time last year during cyclocross season. Us and the team mechanics would... Yeah, uh, mechanics loved Ryan Leach. He's so so chill. 
So chill. Some would say Canadian, but just chill. But if you're if you're not into super chill yoga, uh, my hip opener is a little bit more sarcastic and I'm not going to say faster paced, but it might feel faster because I speak quickly. Yeah, so we'll put links to I guess both of those in the show notes, but it should you should find that at ryanleach.com. Uh, I think last time we had a smartathlete.ca/cx course for the CX course, I but if so. you just watch our twitters and stuff this week, I'm sure you'll get spammed with that. It's true. What else is going on? Oh, man. Well, we had a pretty good recovery week. We jumped in the pool on Monday to sort of just move our muscles a little bit. Uh, I remembered why I hate lane swimming. I spent a lot of time like an angry New Jersey driver that I am. I'm pretty excited for it. I'm reading, uh, rereading, I guess, Sheila Tormina's. Tormina. um, Her book, and she was on the podcast. One of my favorite episodes because she turned out to be probably the most consummate athlete we've ever had because she's gone to the olympics for triathlon decathlon and then also swimming um so she had to learn to horse ride and fence to be part of the decathlon but we'll link to that in the show notes because you need to check that episode out but her book is actually i found really really motivating to go try swimming and it's high end and focused on getting faster but the swim faster right i don't think that's what her book's actually called i can go grab it here but um her book is really good, and it's got me excited. Some cool stuff, and it's well-worded for, like, a skills book. I think that's what I also like about it, is just seeing how different skills books and skills content is worded. Mm-hmm. Um, the reason I just get grumpy in the pool whenever there's more than two people in a lane. It's not their fault, but just... It's definitely the downfall of... PSA, if you're in a pool with me, please be in the correct slow, medium, or fast lane. Yeah, I mean, I think we're in a place where if we could just find a few more people, it's not that expensive. I mean, I guess it's more expensive than the $4 that it costs to go lane swim. Lane swimming is pretty cheap. Yeah. Um, Anyway. So we're excited about swimming. You're excited about swimming. I'm moderate on swimming. But it felt good to do that after, you know, pretty crazy weekend. And it was, I do think it's such a good recovery tool. Like, I felt so much better after having done that compared to if I just walked or it's tried to get out on Especially run. compared to anything running, for sure, right, where there's no impact in swimming and it's more upper body focused. Um, you didn't find, like, from a sort of glute posterior chain that you get sore or fatigued? No, but I'm not like you. My kicks aren't, like, moving the water by, like, yards Because of my strong legs. Yeah, that's I'm a it. cyclist, so that makes me better at not, swimming. <laughs> not your wildly inefficient stroke or anything like that. No, you've seen me swim. My legs move, like, two inches. I don't do I anything don't with that's them. true, but, uh, yeah, so anyhow, I think that's also sort of coming into running and cross-training season for a lot of summer athletes. You know, if you're coming out of a variety of these summer sports that we've talked about mm-hmm. it's probably becoming sort of change of seasons it comes with fall yeah uh, so strength. yeah so i mean strength training is definitely sort of ramping up for a lot of athletes so we're rebuilding plans for that and getting people sort of back into the gym and back into running so this is my yearly caution to go very slow and do about 50 percent of what you think you can do if you're if you've got a history probably do about 10 percent you know, it's funny, I was listening to a podcast that was actually trying to be more like, li- it was more of a lifestyle, like business kind of thing. And they were giving this example of like, only doing what you're like, your effort should be what you're the most trained to do. So the woman's example was like, if I want to run a 30 mile run, but I've never done more than four miles at a time, like that doesn't actually make sense. 
Like, you would never go from four miles to going out and doing a 30-miler. Um, but for some strange reason, I think a lot of cyclists in particular that we know have this tendency to be like, oh, well, I ride bikes, so therefore I can run a half marathon or a marathon or, like, a really hard 10K effort just off the bike. Yeah, I think it's because it's it seems like it's such a cardiovascular, like, aerobic yeah. sport, which it is, but it's also very limited by your soft tissue, so tendon, ligament, muscle, right? And so in a lot of ways, it's more like a plyometrics training or a strength training where you're going to get sore. We all would agree that you get sore from running, you get sore from strength training, but for some reason, people are generally more cautious with strength training, and I think maybe just because at some point you can't lift the weight right it's true it, it feels very obvious where he's running i think you can run yourself into the ground before you realize that you've overshot your ability level and i think for most of us it's not like an explosive like i pulled my back out deadlifting or something right whereas with running you know maybe you'll start being a little achy but you can push through a fair bit especially if you're an experienced cyclist you're used to pushing through pain right but yeah it's just all those tissues uh, adapt so slowly, right? So yeah, it's definitely ease into it now before you get the need to do it. It's a good thing to be able to do. So actually, on that note, we had this listed as one of our last Q and A's, but I think we might as well just bring this to the front. Running and cyclocross. I mean, how many of your clients are asking about it, or just you know maybe doing it without mentioning it and having this this problem that we're talking about? Um. I don't know if a lot of them do anything secret like that. I could be wrong, but... Uh, if you do, stop it. But it's definitely a question that comes up, right? Like, oh, should we be doing more running training? Or, you know, should I start running now in anticipation of cyclocross? Uh, or in the middle of the season, should I start running because yeah. it's cyclocross? Yeah, and that does happen. People get nervous. You know, they either hear someone's doing or they, you know, get beat up a... Uh, a run-up, right? So cyclocross, for those that don't know, it runs, you know, it's often in a park and it's sort of, there'll be places where you're forced off your bike. Now the key, I think before we go, I had it written down, the key is that the longest that that run in theory can be forced is 80 meters. Now that doesn't, you know, if it got really muddy or I guess not sandy, it wouldn't get randomly sandy, but if it was very wet out, you could possibly have to run conceivably for a whole lap or something in like a complete mutter. And now I'm going to say I've, I really can't name a single race that I've seen other than maybe cyclocross worlds in 2013 for the masters on the different course than the elites where running was the like hundred percent deciding factor because it was so muddy that you couldn't ride huge chunks. Running can be a deciding fa- Like it can be a decisive factor for sure. But like, I've never seen a race go beyond 80 meters. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, 80 meters isn't that far, right? So, I mean, it's certainly possible. And I think it also goes a bit with your ability to run things, right? So you could see someone in, like, a long sand pit or something. So it, it certainly could, but we're not talking a marathon. And I think everyone yeah. can agree on that. And even in the muddiest of muddy races, most people will probably be on their bike for maybe half the race would be, like, a horrible mudder. And it will seem like you're running for a lot. Mm-hmm. But then if you do that, for most people, that's we're talking 20 minutes of running interspersed, right? And then even running, you know, it's, I think if we look at the confines, so whenever we look at a movement or, you know, a sport demand, we're going to train for something. Um, 
you need to look at, well, what is this? Well, number one, you're never going to not be holding a bicycle. That's against the rules. And I think that gets left out of a lot of the, like, should you run for cyclocross articles and conversations is it just, you're never not holding a bicycle. So if you're not, you've done something very well, you're, you're disqualified, right? So that's important because you're always have a, something that you could potentially lean on, or that's going to be sort of changing your center of mass and just making running sort of clunky right but a lot of times people are running beside a bike and if you can run beside a bike well you can lean on that bike so now you've just taken a lot of the loading out of that anyhow right so if you think about running along a side hill or up a hill you're going to lean on that bicycle um the other thing to remember is that it's never on like pavement they're not going to dis you're not going to a choose to run on pavement that you could just ride on but no one's going to make you dismount onto pavement that's very dangerous so running like most of us would probably do when you said okay i need to run for cyclocross right? It's going to end up being like a 20 minute. That's what you read. If you, I've linked to a couple articles, Chris Mayhew has a great one for Cyclocross Magazine. Um, a lot of times what's suggested is like a run walk building to 20 minutes in the morning or something like that. And it's just like clunking along at whatever, 10 minute or 12 minute miles or something. Right. So it's a lot different than sprinting up a hill that's covered in mud or sand or, you know, it's all off and leaning on a bicycle and going as hard as you possibly can for what we did we say 80 meters maybe which would be long right so it, it's not really running in my mind like you're essentially like it's almost more akin to like not scootering but like you could make analogies to other things that are probably just as similar like skateboarding or rollerblading yeah i don't know like the key to me and and this is where most of the articles sort of go is that like most people forget that you're spending a majority of the time pedaling a bicycle on varied terrain so a lot of these a lot of people forget that they need to go ride these cyclocross bikes in grass and bumpy terrain and learn to roll over stuff without flatting and hop over stuff and then also the important bit of getting on and off the bike because you can run as fast as you want like i've seen lots of great runners really be bad at cyclocross because they never actually practiced and got proficient at the cyclocross mounts and dismounts which you can do with the new online course coming this thursday um so yeah so that's i think when i look at the movement i think a lot of people forget that concept that it's never running on pavement it's never moderate it's never easy you would never run like it, it would be maximal so in that vein what my suggestion is a throughout the year we should be especially for mountain bikers it's harder for road riders but if you're a cyclocross fiend i would say you could probably do a, a gravel or cyclocross ride every week of the year in those incorporate some sort of dismount mount you know in a park or something maybe a hike a bike so a slow speed but walking up hills this could be also like the family dog walk could go up a couple hills to build that calf strength and your ability to walk up hills um, and then as the cross season approaches, I really like the workouts. I didn't invent them by any stretch, but like a 30, 30, 30, 30, or I think that's like, what is 30 to the fourth power or something cubed, not cubed. Sounds like two minutes. Yeah. So essentially, yeah, it's a two minute bout and you can go up to 10 minutes total, but you're going to cycle through basically running as hard as you can up a hill. And then you sort of would jump on your bike and coast down and you can decide what you do during the off period. And then you would r ride really hard. That could be up a hill or across a sand thing or however you want to divide that out. So maybe another 30-second riding hill. And then 30 seconds easy again, sort of coasting down a hill, working on skills. And then you're going to cycle back through. So this uses the cyclocross mini loop that I really like and is featured in the cyclocross mounts and dismounts course that launches this Thursday. Um, but that, to me, really isolates running into like an interval session with your bike. Right. Because to me, it's 
it's completely different running with a bicycle and having to mount and dismount on both ends of that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've also seen some people get like so out of control on the run because they hadn't practiced that kind of running that they botched the dismount horribly. Right. Um, so I think that's really, that That would be the main way. You know, I've seen Mike Garrigan used to just, while we were riding along, if he saw a patch of grass, he'd just dismount and like run for a bit and then run. literally the most annoying thing that Mike Garrigan does. <laughs> it, Mike, if you're listening, I remember this from college. Fair enough. But I mean, I think that's something you could just throw in, especially as the season approaches. And that's getting used to that impact of coming off the bike and just the on and off portions. Um, but I think it's really that the mounts dismounts are the big piece. And then I think just including it into workout. So that might even be, you know, building, you have your Wednesday night cross practice, you probably have a run up and a thing. So to me, that's taken care of the running mostly. Um, so I think from the only other thing I would add that from a consummate athlete standpoint, I think being able to run, especially in the Canadian winter is, is a good thing. And that's I, what I was going to add. Yeah. And that's almost an aside. Right. And I think, you know, if I had athletes training in the gym, we'd probably be building towards doing some sprinting or some sled work, um, some weighted carries for sure, but certainly building towards sprinting and working on running form. Um, but I, I don't see a ton of cyclocross people necessarily doing that, but that is a definitely like an athletic, like, is it good to be athletic for sure? But I think most people, when they ask this question, they're asking in a very almost last minute sense about adding 20 minute jogs. And I think that answer is just to me definitively, no, there's absolutely no reason to spend 20 minutes doing that no i'd say if you have an extra 20 minutes your better bet would be to be doing more of like a short yoga routine and some core work and like a bit of strength versus a 20 minute easy run i mean you have to know the person but i think you could make a compelling argument right so you could do that you could like i'm gonna make that argument because cross hurts like you're super sore well, after a good and, and when we're thinking about the mounts dismiss how many people are maybe limited a bit in their hip mobility yeah. um you know or running uphills you know those calves hamstrings or maybe something um could you do some sort of core workout as part of that yoga routine we have we'll link to molly's morning yoga and then also to my anywhere core routine um you know would that sort of give you the impacts and the muscle loading the you know get rid of some of that muscle soreness you well, know, without leaving the house. And as you're teaching remounts and dismounts, I mean, we do talk a ton about planks and like how it's a pretty similar motion in a lot of ways to doing like almost a bird dog plank. Yeah, for like cornering and for mounts. But it, really, it's sort of hard to explain in audio. But the idea is that, you know, being an athlete, you learn to apply tension to keep your balance, to keep your position. So if you think about cornering as maybe an easier analogy, you have sort of pressure into your handlebars or maybe pushing maybe into that inside hand or both hands, leaning the bike into the corner. And then certainly that outside leg is probably down in cyclocross. So you can see how that might be like a, a plank where you lift your opposite hands, right? There's tension across your body. Um, so there's all these things that are transferable, right? And then you're like, okay, well, is a plank more similar to running up a hill, right? You know, maybe a plank with some metabolic demand, I don't know, uh, versus running on flat pavement at a very clunky pace. Yeah. Um, and I think you'd have to look at the athlete, right? If someone was horrible at running, again, this might be a place where we actually have to work a bit on sprint mechanics or, you know, someone even skipping to me, like you'd almost be better to learn how to skip. If you were dead set, you were going to spend 10 minutes you know, twice a week. Oh, 10 minutes of skipping just sounds like hell. 
Well, I mean, again, you could interact skipping with planks. Maybe that's our, our cyclocross training. But the reason I like that is you get quick footwork. You're getting sort of that loading of your calf foot. Um, and and you're, I think the coordination piece is really important, but you're getting sort of that running mechanics, right? I, I could, again, that's something I could explain more in person, I think, but skipping is, is got these nice light, light steps, sort of rhythmic, you know, sort of landing maybe lightly on your foot. Sure. Um, and I think for a lot of us that maybe didn't grow up running a ton and have sort of that big clunky, you know, I guess heel strike for lack of a better term, but just we run big pounding steps. That's sort of handy to sort of figure out, but. Yeah. All right. So that sort of sums up, I think, our views on running for cyclocross. But if this is a topic that like super interests you guys, let us know over on Twitter or Instagram or yeah. much anywhere because we're contemplating doing an episode talking to a bunch of yeah maybe getting like people on the phone for quick like opinions or something like that yeah um maybe this is when jeremy powers finally appears <laughs> on the podcast who knows um but yeah i think so we'll link to chris mayhew's stuff i said also we'd link to some core stuff there um but that that should i think at least present the general argument yeah all right, so that is that, but let's keep going on cyclocross. You've been getting a lot of questions about tire pressure, both for mountain biking and cyclocross. So let's let's do, yeah, like a primer on tire pressure here. And I will note, you mentioned this in the yeah. remount and dismount It's course. launching this Thursday. Uh-huh. I don't know if I mentioned that. Actually, so I did want to just put it out there because I feel like courses sound really expensive. Uh, this one is actually not you said that like it's really cheap it's really free. cheap yeah you um, should do it no it's 19.99 i think it's going to be the fee and then you can also get all the ryan leach courses the membership is actually the same price so you can either get the one course or you can get the whole the membership which is then like a monthly yes yeah. yeah so i just wanted to put that out there in case people listening just kind of dismiss the idea of course because they think like courses tend to be like in the couple hundred dollar range no i mean if i if, if it saves you from bashing your face off of a barrier i mean twenty dollars is nothing yeah okay anyway back to tire pressure sorry <laughs> that was such an odd ad um hey, i'm trying yeah right? okay so i got made fun of for our ads at the last cyclocross clinic we did really yeah he was uh one of the guys and i can't remember and i apologize because he's probably listening right now he's like yeah you guys really are really awkward doing ads and i was like yeah man yeah that's, okay that's well ma- maybe we'll just put them in like this i much prefer performance art like this just i mean i think even this counts as our awkward but <laughs> I don't know. It's more conversational. We're doing but, what we can. Okay, let's talk about tire pressure. Uh, what what do you run for tire pressure? Uh, I pretty much. I'm gonna admit I'm really bad for this. I don't really do like digital gauge very. Okay, well that's the first thing. Often. This is we should measure. This is the measure if we manage. So, okay, would you let me finish? No, I'm just saying that this is an important piece. When people are talking about this and it's getting heated, right? We're not getting heated, but just when people get heated. I'm about, getting heated because you didn't let me finish. No, but I, I'm gonna let you finish in a second. But oh my god. So he's kind of so the digital gauge, especially for cyclocross, is important because we need to know what we're talking about. If you're just going to use an analog gauge off of the old pump or everyone's different pumps, then it's not going to like the argument makes no sense. So digital gauge. Anyway, I generally go thumb test style because that's sort of how I learned. And can you give us like a brief? People have a lot of trouble with it. It is a really weird one, and I've actually found it kind of works out well because. Like, a bigger guy, like a 230-pound, like, beefy dude is gonna 
his thumb pressure is going to be different than mine, but it's going to be kind of almost relative. So I try to do it where I can almost get down to the rim if I like push as hard as I can mm-hmm. on the cross bike um, for just like a normal course where there's nothing crazy happening. Um, and I'd say a bigger dude, like a two, again, that 230 pound guy is going to have to have a much higher pressure in order to get that same like thumb press down because like if he presses down on like a 20 psi tire right he's gonna hit the rim very easily because his thumb is gonna be well and i think that's that's maybe where that's come from and why it's lasted right is that he sort of goes with grip strength which then correlates maybe to full body strength and which correlates to full body size yeah roughly so i tend to run when i have checked it like in that like 20 223 psi on tubulars for cross right on like an average course yeah i think that's that's valid so we'll link uh helen wyman actually i think on her site but i'll link to it It, if you look up like wyman method maybe for like wyman method tire pressure i'm sure you'll find it but we'll link to it she has a nice uh sort of formula based off of body weight um, and it assumes that you're using tubular tires or I think tubeless or maybe even cotton clinchers sort of it, there's always going to be these different types different examples and then different courses and then your skill sort of varies with this right so whenever people ask what tire pressure it depends so much right and it's talked about all the time I remember powers would get asked at the races all the time what tire pressure and I was just like how can you possibly like how is that relative to this person who weighs you know 30 pounds more than him and isn't maybe as smooth as him right you know if we couldn't say any anyone weighed less than him that's just not allowed i guess that's fair <laughs> enough um the one i'm thinking of anyhow was a quite a bigger person asking um so the important piece i think is that so within tire types in cyclocross at least you'll have tubular and tubeless in mountain biking you have tubeless so i think it, it, you're speaking similar languages um, and generally in that range, I think what you'll see people run is sort of 20 to 30 PSI. Um, you're always going to have people outside of that range, but I think most of the time you're going to have people in that range. And I think in sand, your very, very light people will run down into like the teens. Um, on some bumpy, bumpy course, you're going to see the bigger people running up 35s or something. Um, and I think if you get into clinchers or tires with tubes, and this would again apply, I think, for mountain biking, and I would sort of have people start in around 30 PSI, so maybe call that 25 to 35, and again, you're going to have people that somehow run 18 PSI with tubes and never flat, uh, but a lot of people are going to have to be well up into those 30s to keep the, the tire on. Skill really matters, especially with mountain biking. Skill and tactics, I think, right? Like, if you're going to bounce your front wheel off of barriers, then you're going to probably have to put more air into it. Like, you just can't run yeah. 18 PSI and bash your front wheel into a barrier. Um, if it was really rocky, you know, same thing. Um, and so I always come down, this is the question, again, people are asking at a race. Like, this is where that cross practice, you know, we, instead of running in the morning, should we be out you know, testing tire pressures, you know, test the gauge and then go out and ride the local sand pit or the local grass and see how low can you go until you actually feel something, right? When you're pre-riding, of course, in this Helen Wyman's method, she suggests starting on the low end with this formula. And then if it's good, it's good. If you're feeling it peeling or you're bumping off stuff, add a PSI and try again. I tend to start on the like higher side and go lower, but she's much more accomplished than I am. So 
take that for what it's worth. Well, it depends on if you're okay with flatting your tire. Well, maybe not. maybe she has a better tire budget. I'm not sure. Yeah, um, and then we'll link to the digital gauge that you like. The, the toe peak, yeah. So it's a it works the best. About, yeah, I don't. I mean, do we need to talk about tire gauge? I think just in the sense of like, if you keep doing all of this experimentation, it really helps to record some of this stuff. Like after a race, you know, maybe note like, oh. Gloucester that which is like super grassy and like not super techy I could go down to eight like I ran 18 psi it felt great and that way next year when you're racing Gloucester you can look back on your training peaks or whatever app you keep this info in and be able to say oh okay this is what I ran this is at least my starting point for figuring out what pressure to run this weekend yeah, I, I would say a new athlete, so maybe the first five years, or if you just haven't paid a lot of attention in your first 20 years like myself, um, it's worth journaling for sure. And, and when I say journaling, I don't mean in the like current sense of like dream journals or whatever, but hey, I'm manifesting. it could maybe be in the same book. But basically you'd write, my, my strategy is to have the name of the race and the date, um, and then I like to draw the course, and then I like to r put like what equipment I ran, um, and then I also like to sort of write out things I'm worried about. And this is maybe in the days ahead or the week ahead. I was going to say, this is like almost more But it's a pre, pre it's a pre-post because I also would have a section in that journal where it's just how it went, what did I learn, yeah. what, and then next year. And then it is quite handy to have that till then when you return to whatever event, right? Yeah. Uh, most people will stay doing the same sport and stuff. So I think this applies to most things, right? You return to the same area to ride, you have an idea. I think a lower level thing that a lot of my clients will do is in their, their training log, which is training peaks, they'll just put tire pressure 22, 21. Yeah. So I just actually want to talk about the race day journal for a sec, because this is like one of my favorite things that I think that you do. And it's a thing I kind of adapted this year for road racing was the pre-race journaling where you're getting all of like the information kind of written out and like schedule like writing down the schedule of the day and like all the pertinent information and figuring that out because how many masters do you know or riders that you know that who show up like a little too late to like get the good parking space or like this that and the other thing or forget this one crucial piece of gear but if you kind of spend like half an hour journaling out that schedule and like list of stuff you need to bring to your race you're just not going to have that issue. Yeah, I would say there's a lot of, I don't want to pick on masters, but masters have families that they have to organize and, uh, you know, think about, whereas junior racers are usually pretty, some, they have a team of people helping them. But for both, you know, for anyone, I think planning out in the days ahead, what does race day look like? Maybe going as far as what does the day before the race look like? And that's like a by hour sort of set up and so you might have you know you wake up at seven and have your coffee and breakfast and then you're going to fill your bottles and then you're going to go to staging or get your bike marked or you know in running it might be staging and then you're going to go to the washroom and when you're going to do your stride warm-ups then you're going to go to the washroom again yeah so i think planning that out so that you have this routine and and it does become fairly common sense and you become pretty good like i say once you get past that like five years of i'm trying to think of the long-term athletic 
product development model, the, the fundamental stages. I mean, you say that, but last year when we were working on Aspire, actually the last three years, every weekend, I had an hour-by-hour hour schedule that went out to everyone, like all the racers, all the mechanics. And that's like a logistical thing, so I mean, that's slightly different when you're organizing people. Yeah, right? but it had like their pre-rides and all that stuff in, like, and they they didn't look at the calendar or the schedule, they looked at this document that I Yeah, I mean, out. it's good to plan. It, it eliminates choices and decisions you have to make yeah. day of, right? And that's, you're just really trying to eliminate that, I guess, decision fatigue, um, you know, that where you're not sure about things. Yeah, exactly. Um, and you're trying to develop that routine where you're just used to eating at this time and eating this food at this time and eating, you know, warming up at this time, putting your shoe on at this time, right? Like, it's all planned out and it's just routine it's like your everyday right yeah exactly cool all right enough about that uh the next question kind of is around structured workouts so i actually really like this one how to do a structured workout on the mountain bike and this is this is something i have an issue with actually because i find it really hard especially for efforts to do much on the mountain bike on like any kind of technical terrain or anything like that so right um and I think we could probably expand this out. You know, I, I think it's probably the same way you do structured work rock climbing or structured work yeah. running, you know, trail running. Um, yeah, just where the what, nature... Did, he, did he, they list um, their main concerns or the struggles they're having? Oh, no, okay, it's down there. I thought it was the bigger one. No, okay, I'm so saving, we have... The bigger one's my favorite, so I'm saving it for last. Gotcha. Okay, so... There, where maybe we have like a heart rate monitor, you know, maybe a Garmin with some, you know, a variety of elevation and GPS based stuff. And then we also have sort of our perceived exertion. Um, so I think the key thing is you're going to warm up and you're going to cool down. That's what's, you know, going to make a good standard workout. I think mountain bikers as a whole are, are big on the arrive at the trailhead and straight up the mountain. Um, a lot of the time there's not a lot of choice in terms of the trail right like sure you get on whatever trail is at the trail if, if you're there yeah and i mean if with you're with a group they everyone starts and they're free to do it's not their fault they can do whatever they want um what i try to encourage both to add a bit of training stress to the day and then also you know to drive less and then also so that you're actually warm and like mentally checked in it's not just your body and the blood flow and muscle activation right. that we're trying to get um but by riding on the road ahead of time um, you know, and that could be with structure or just your gradual warm up based on your feeling, but just not huge loads climbing up a hill. Um, and again, this is the same for running. Um, you're just trying to get mentally checked in, right? Like mountain biking is hard and quite technical trail running. You have, you know, roots and stuff you have to be paying attention to. So to try and avoid falling or feeling like crap warming up so you could park further away from the trails right we're fortunate we can ride to a lot of the trails here not everyone does it though right a lot of people drive because they're a pretty long ride well they're mountain bikers and that's not what they do right and riding a mountain bike on the road is sort of you know weird and clunky but it does add training to your day and a lot of times people do it you know even a partial drive you know they park you know they get out of the city and then they park at the bottom of whatever the mountain and then ride up or something on the road or however it works um, but they find that it actually, the time is actually the same, but they actually rode an extra 10, 20, 40 minutes, right? Right. So warming up is important. Cooling down. We did have sort of a side question about cooling down. I think it is worth sort of spinning out, especially after anything that's hard, 
So the idea with cooling down to me is like you're sort of just revving the engine back down and your heart rate's coming down and normalizing. And it's easy to see what I mean in a very isolated like trainer situation or something. But if you've done intervals, your heart rate's up. So like you could finish a race and sit still and your heart rate's up. Right. Right. So that makes sense. So the idea with the cool down to me is that you're trying to make that heart rate normalize so that like when you're sitting still, it's a normal heart rate for sitting still. But you would do that maybe just cooling the engine down. Right. So you're just going to spin lightly. I don't think for most people they need to do a lot. But, you know, we've had questions about cyclocross today and sort of double weekend like where you're racing twice in a weekend. I think that's where maybe spinning for 10 or 20 minutes for most people is probably good. So even within the workout, just during like an interval, what I wanted to say about cool down is I saw this a lot during like the last camp that we were at where we were doing hill repeats and the interval would be up the hill and then everyone would flip and just coast down the hill. And I spent so much time trying to yell at everyone to just even just spin their legs, even if the power is still reading zero, just moving your legs. Right. Because it hurts to restart after that. So it's it's a mini cool down within the interval, I guess. Like it's the well, recovery and portion. so the question is whether you want to cool down in that situation. Uh, I'm just trying to think if I finished everything about cooling down. I think that's the main thing. You should, probably should cool down and, again, do it on your workout days so that then at the race you're not wondering what you should do because the race is just an interval workout. There's a warm-up. There's an interval, which we call a race. Then you're done and you cool down. If you could press the lap button between all those things, that would be fantastic. Um, but it's the same workout. It's a warm-up, a race, or an interval workout, and then a cool-down. So to your point, say we're doing mountain bike intervals or running. We've been doing a lot of running up the ski hill here. And it has the same sort of problem because there's always going to be a down portion when you're doing hill intervals. And I think sometimes you just have to do what you have to do. Um, you're right that if you can pedal, you generally you, you'll feel better. People would say their legs feel full. If you've ever done like a big long mountain descent or something, and then had to start again, or start you know stopped at a coffee shop and then had to start again, you've probably felt that like clunky, slow feeling. Um, I think with hill intervals, especially hard ones like a VO2 interval, there is some theory to keeping your heart rate up. Uh, and you can define what that means, but not so low that you're like into recovery ranges so that when you start the next interval, the time it takes to get into the zone, I guess, for lack right. of a better term, but to get like the activation of, um, I guess, VO2, like time in range, um, it just gets there quicker. Right. Right. So if you let it go all the way down to zero, then it takes longer to get to a hundred. But if you can keep it at 65 or 70, then you're back up into that range sooner. Um, but I think sometimes that's just the nature of it. So I think when they're talking about structure for mountain biking, I think there's probably the overarching thing is sometimes it just needs to be like a more monotonous, repetitive, like up the three minute hill, down the three minute hill, but there could be some fun descending. Like that's the way I always looked at hill intervals is it means I get to come down something a bunch, right? Um, So if you can just rig up a bit of a downhill run, that can be pretty specific. Obviously be careful on your way down, but that's again, a pretty specific skill to mountain biking is that you need to be cross-eyed and come down. That was like one of your favorite parts about Ventura in California. Yeah, there's a urban park, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, so you ride the hill like on the road, 
go crazy going up it and then you get to rip this cool little single track section down yeah and it had jumps and stuff but that was a great example so i used the hill so i knew how long it took me to get up the hill generally and i could gauge my progress i'd start at the same spot and then i'd finish wherever i finished depending on the day um, and during the interval you can see how that changes so that's great pacing exercise and very like focused practice if we talk about um deliberate practice you know we, we have we're getting feedback on how our efforts are, are sort of going a lot of times i would have wattage with that too but you almost don't need it because you can see the most important thing is getting to the top of the hill right so that would be an example of a structured workout but then the next day we might go do a four-hour mountain bike ride and that might be 30 minutes on the road to the trailhead climb up a mountain descend a mountain a bit of more trail time ride back home 30 minutes warm up cool down is done um, and that might be an endurance ride with some harder elements in it because it's mountain biking um, but my classic thing is always just 65 to 85%. So you're just avoiding, you know, big sprints or like similar VO2 efforts that you did the day before. And then for a pretty fit person, we'd maybe do a road day that's much more steady. And that's, I think, what mi is missing in a lot of mountain bikers' schedule is just that day, that endurance day where it's, you know, maybe 65 to 75%, but very steady, mm -hmm. no breaks. Um, and that could be your mountain bike on a path or something like that too. Sure. Uh, and then there should be an off day in there too. So I, I wouldn't say everyone does three day blocks. It could very easily be VO2 day, off day, you know, mountain bike day, off day, road day, off day, or right. it could be two day blocks with those sort of arranged how you like. So to me, it sounds like the short answer is like, it may seem tempting to assume that like I'm mountain biking, therefore I can't possibly do a structured workout, but there's kind of always a way to do a structured workout if you want to actually make it happen. I think so. I think, you know, even I'll ride, I, I think you're exactly right. I, I don't know that I needed to add a ton to that. I think having a purpose, yes, right? but you'd like to argue with it. No, if there's... So there's hill interval days and then there's sort of endurance days or you could group maybe like a threshold interval, like a off-road TT into maybe however, whichever pool you want to, those probably more your intensity day really. Um, but you can still pay attention to how long it takes you to get around a loop or up a hill. Um, but I think the important thing is like a lot of people, and this isn't even a mountain biker thing, but when we talk about training versus just riding, there's a purpose to the day. So it might be an endurance day or this is a hard interval day. Um, but within those hard interval days, it's not as hard as I possibly can go up a climb and get my Strava KOM and then just nothing, right? Because that's not really training. That's like one effort. Right. But So rather than one times at 245 up my three-minute hill, I'll do seven at three minutes versus, right? So it's not my fastest efforts ever, but I get seven of them in the quote-unquote zone. Right. So I think that's the, the thing to keep an eye on if you're concerned about training and structure is like, is there any sort of method to that? Is there like any sort of standard intervals in there? Is there variation day to day in the volume and intensity? Um, and I think that's where the structure comes from. And, and I think probably you could do a really good job just thinking like short and hard mountain bike day and then ride the path day. And then you have sort of high intensity and low intensity. Right. Right. But, yeah. Perfect. Love it. All right, so this last one is from Sean. He said, thanks for all the great podcasting. Hooray! Uh, he has a question about recovery and commuting via bike. So he commutes about 15 miles a day, five days a week on city roads, so lots of red lights and stop signs. 
Uh, it's more convenient for him than driving, but after a hard weekend of bike racing, so cross mountain bike or hiking or something else, he still rides. So he's wondering if this is hurting his recovery um, by slowing down the ability to recover, or has his body accepted this as normal? And lastly, uh, wait, this is the question I really like. Uh, would you generally count this time and effort in training at all? I've done it here and there. Uh, just to get an idea and get anywhere from 35 to 50 TSS for the round trip. I basically try to keep the effort low whenever possible, but there's always something that throws that off. Hmm. So I really like this because we walk, we don't commute to an office, but we do walk all of our errands or like ride to the gym, stuff like that. So I am always kind of struggling to figure out what, what bucket I put, you know, a f- 10... 10k grocery walk i don't know that there's like we do longer walks but i mean 2k like he's riding for probably an hour at like a light pace to get 30 tss and if that's both ways then that that could be a, a fairly significant I think it's load. 15 miles total per day okay so i mean 30 that would to me would be like a recovery spin um for that tss i mean he could be doing sprints during that but we know the distance and rough time right um so it, it's interesting a lot of clients just we just understand between us that they commute most days of the week uh, because it makes it clunky just you know a they probably don't wear a heart rate monitor or have a power meter um you know and if you're wearing street clothes i always say like if it's something that like a normal person could do on a you know a rental what are those bikes called like a city bike yeah like if we're talking about a city bike and a normal person can do it then it's probably just normal person activity right and that's why we're here our podcast is based around this moving throughout the day so I think that's that. I think a lot of people incorporate, you know, they try and go longer on some days on their commutes and, you know, sort of add it into their, their riding. I think that's a great strategy. So like you maybe ride in the morning, but you bring some clothes and then you make it longer, right? Like you just leave from the office and do a bigger ride. So I think that's a way to leverage that. Um, you know, I, I think it benefits you. Most people are pretty limited on the volume they have. So I, I don't think I'd say stop. I think the only thing I'd add is just from like the previous question, maybe there's some days of the week that it would be good to, you know, take the bus or take the e-bike or um, drive, right? Just to sort of offload things a bit. Yeah, I guess if like time is of the essence, but if he's been doing this for years, I don't think it's that big of a deal. I mean, there are plenty of people who work you know, pretty man, like, I mean, I guess it would partially depend on what he does for work, but I mean, the average person actually, including people who are training, do kind of need more of this, like, movement throughout the day kind of stuff going on anyway. So to me, if he's working in an office, you know, riding for an hour really casually is, like, just kind of part and parcel of, like, what a normal human should be doing throughout the day. Yeah, yeah, I think for sure most days it's probably fine, and even after a long, like, his question's more after, like, a hard weekend of racing and hiking, and it seems like they're pretty active on the weekend, Um, you know, would you take a Monday off day? I don't know, I think I'd I'd be tempted sometimes, especially if it was, like, double weekend of racing into another double weekend of somewhere in that week, just to have a day where you're not doing as much but molly's point of you know if the whole day you're very passive you know not doing a lot then maybe that's the only chance at activity Uh, so you might end up feeling better but i think that idea of undulating 
the stress still applies to even those recovery rides because they are you know not an insignificant portion yeah for sure um the only thing that like driving sometimes allows yeah it sucks but if you can leave your car and bring your suits for the day um you know your change of clothes and stuff then you could leave your car maybe there for a day or two or for the whole week i don't know your situation um and then like i say do a bigger ride on the way home on tuesday so then now you're sort of leveraging the day off to get prepared for the week and then you know you don't have to haul as much stuff the other days of the week and you can start doing maybe some longer rides and you know your family doesn't even know the difference it's you know an hour commute home versus a 90 minute commute home right yeah yeah for sure uh, oh, and I'd say if you have a recovery ride scheduled on Monday, you could probably count your oh. commute as your recovery ride. Yeah, people sometimes make that mistake for sure if we haven't like explicitly talked about it well enough. Like, yeah, I think the difference is, is close enough there. Um, so just skip whatever recovery ride is on your... Yeah, it's an odd thing because right? it's so similar for sure. Like, we'd, I don't know. It's You just need to have a system. So, I mean, if we think about calculating TSS, right, people have the same struggle with strength training right because it it's not really captured the stress of like a single deadlift isn't really captured in tss very well tss is i guess it's not really in training peaks but it was a system to develop like the the fatigue basically you have from training right so your training stress score for a given workout so it's not as simple as heart rate times time but that's what it's sort of based on um or power so how much power you're doing and then for how long yeah right so it's the the stress how hard was that workout and it's trying to put that into a common language based on your fitness um so the question is do you need to include those in it and then what are you going to do with that extra information i guess it depends i mean as long as your coach knows about it like you were saying so i'd say that would be my only thing is just make sure whoever's making your training plan is aware that you're pedaling for an extra hour a day yeah and that you're carrying this extra 30 tss potentially you know on a daily average right because that will sort of contribute in uh when we start looking at your chronic training load um but it's it again it, it you're all everything's relative to you in in those terms so i think to me i would just leave it out so that the calendar's easy and you don't have to wear your garment as much and heart rate straps and post your comments for that like you may as well just put that effort into the workouts that are actually sort of the the key workouts i guess definitely um cool i think that wraps that one up yeah um, as always, we'd love to hear more questions and episodes that you'd like to hear, topics you'd like to hear covered, sports you want to check out, all that fun stuff. You can leave us a comment. Uh, we have a contact form over on consummateathlete.com. Uh, we'll have the cyclocross remount and dismount course info in the show notes. Uh, or you can reach out to us on Twitter. That's at Peter Glassford and at Molly J. Herford with any questions, comments, all that fun stuff. And yeah, we'll be back next week with yet another exciting episode. And I'm super stoked. I'll be in anyone in Washington, D.C. area or any females in Washington, D.C. I'm doing a women's shop talk at the Rafa Cycle Club in D.C. on September 12th, I believe. Uh, So I'll put that up in the show notes as well. And hopefully I'll see some of you there. And if not there, then maybe in Madison for the first World Cup of the season. Woo! All right, take care and we'll see you next time. Thanks so much for tuning into the Consummate Athlete Podcast. 
Uh, you can check out my stuff over at theoutdooredit.com or by following me on Instagram and Twitter at Molly J. Herford. And you can check out Peter's coaching, training plans, blogs, all that fun stuff over at smartathlete.ca or by following him on Twitter and Instagram at Peter Glassford. And if you want to support this show and other awesome podcasts, please check out wideanglepodium.com for show info, other podcasts, bonus content, and to become a donating member so you can get all of that rad behind-the-scenes content and help keep shows like this on the air. And lastly, if you're enjoying this podcast and all the information that we're bringing to you every single week, uh, do us a solid and pop into iTunes to leave us a rating and review. It takes you about two seconds. You can do it on your computer. You can do it on your phone. And it really helps us out. Thanks so much, and we will see you next week. 